Well, hey, welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Nick. And I'm Garland. And today we are going to be talking about the environment uh, in light of what has become in many ways a politically polarized issue on what is our responsibility in caring for the earth and with questions of climate change and what's human responsibility in that, what measures are reasonable to be taking. Uh, what we want to try to do is say, what, does the, the, what do the scriptures actually say about humanity's responsibility to take care of God's earth? So Garland, take us there. Yeah, I mean, we like like all like all things. We want to look at the Bible first. What does the Bible actually say and not say? That way, we can then approach the political or the public discussion uh, with the right lenses on. I remember for me, this this issue first surfaced in my world when I was I, I can't remember exactly the, the year it was. I was like a teenager, and uh, it was there was a business that was building uh, some like some basically strip malls and parking lots here in the area where we grew up. And uh, a lady went down and chained herself to one of the trees where they were going to uh, build this parking lot in this building. And it, it created just this several weeks. If I remember correctly, it was like several weeks. Every night on the nightly news. On the news. nightly news was, did she come down? out? Could they get her out of the tree? <laughs> she was living up there. And there was like a bunch of people for her that were bringing her food. There was a bunch of people against her. And it was it was this bizarre. Maybe we just live in a ridiculous place in the world where that's our news. <laughs> uh, but I remember every, every night that was on our news cycle for like a two or three week period. And uh, for some reason, everybody had an opinion about it too. And uh, so that, that's, a, that's a, a personal example from, from our part of the world. But it does bring up the question of what, what are Christians' responsibilities here? What are we supposed to do when these stories come across uh, our, our eyes and our ears and our culture? And then just maybe in, in general, uh, how should we steward this world, this universe, and in this particular case, this, this earth that God has placed us in? And so uh, we're not we're not scientists. You and I we're not no. uh, definitely not. Uh, we're not meteorologists. We're not you know uh, climate people. So we don't know the the data. And so we're not weighing into it from that perspective. But we are coming at it from a biblical perspective. And if, if perspective, and with that in mind, we get to go where we frequently go in the Out of Curiosity podcast. We got to go back to the first page. And so let's go to Genesis chapter one. And uh, what we're going to see unfold for us in Genesis chapter one is this story that is giving us the background. This is giving us, it's orienting us to our function and purpose in this world. And what we're going to see displayed for us, and, and it's very familiar is God as the agent of all creation also then gives the creation that he has made its purpose, its function. And the seven day, this week of God creating this universe, this world, is God giving its function, its purpose to all of these things that are in the world. And uh, we, we may do a podcast later where we just work our way through the Genesis account. I think I would enjoy that. But what, what we are particularly noting here is the 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 idea of humans being made in God's image. Now, we've drawn numbers of implications out from this idea before, but uh, we're going to go back to it one more time. So, Nick, why don't you read for us Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, the first part of 28. Great. I'm in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I'm reading the NIV. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Perfect. So what we, what we see, and we've, we've commented on other applications, one of the things that we're seeing here is God is giving humanity their function in his creation. And there's been debate throughout the centuries as to what exactly the image of God means and what, what exactly the idea is behind this. And uh, I think as we've learned more about the, the culture around the Hebrew people back in this day, so this would be the primary composer author of Genesis is Moses, and he's writing somewhere around between 1500 and 1000 BC. So depend, there's debate on what, what exactly the dating of when Moses lived. But as Moses is writing this, he's, he's, breathing the air of the cultures around him. Egypt, he's obviously leading the people out of Egypt. He was raised in Egypt. Uh, and also the, the Canaanite people around him, the Mesopotamian culture, the Assyrian culture, the Hittite culture, all of these cultures have similar stories and similar narratives about the origin of creation. They have similar sounding things like our Genesis account. And that shouldn't make us feel uncomfortable, but we have to put our lenses on of an ancient person not a modern person. And when we do that, and we come to this particular account, we're going to see some really important points of contrast. And so when we look at this idea of humans being created in the image or in the likeness of God, the first thing we have to understand is how different this account is than all the other cultures' accounts in the ancient Near Eastern world that Moses would be drawing on and comparing. You see, in all the other accounts, what we see is essentially the gods are having some sort of cosmic battle, the gods are having some sort of fight, or in a lot of the accounts around the Hebrew people, there's multiple gods and they just got tired. They're tired of all of their work, they have all these tasks that they don't want to do, and as a result, they need to create some kind of being to do all of this mundane stuff that they don't want to, and thus they create humans. So if you look at all the, the, the cultures around the biblical, the biblical narrative, they're going to give us narratives that sound a lot like this, except all of the stories will have humans being created essentially as slaves. Yeah. That's our lot in life. That's who we are. And here we come to the biblical story, and instead of being slaves meant to just fulfill these mundane tasks of the gods, it says that the humans are made in the image of God. Here's one more point of contrast, then we'll try to put the implication on the earth with this. One more point of contrast is this, and I find this utterly fascinating because I'm a history nerd. If there ever was someone made in the image of God in the ancient culture, there would only be one, and that would be the king, the emperor, the ruler. And that's what we would expect because in the ancient world, the king represents the deity to the people. That's the king's function. And so therefore, he's the image of God. And so if you think about it, you have the gods up there, the deities, then he has his the deity's representation is in the king, and the king might be made in the image of God, but then everyone else essentially serves that order, king and gods. And uh, what's so fascinating about the biblical account is it flips all of that on its head, and we can't miss how crazy this would have been in the ancient culture. It should be crazy in our culture. No, it's not that humans are slaves for the gods, and no, it's not that just this one human, namely the king, is made in God's image. In the biblical story, it says he made male and female, each and every one of us, in his image. And the question is, what is the image meant to do? And in the ancient culture and in the biblical account, the image is meant to reflect the beauty and goodness and order and 
and creativity and worth of the one who made it. It's the same, this word image is the same word often used for idol in the Old Testament. So like an idol of a God would be something you'd place in a temple and it would represent the God there. But in the biblical account, our God needs no idol. Mm. Our God is the God over all things. He's the God of the universe, but he's made an image. But it's not an image made out of stone or wood. It's a living, breathing image called you and me, humans. That's, what's, mm. that's, our, that's who we are. That's our function in this world. And that's what's so ironic in the Old Testament when the Hebrew people, and in the New Testament context, when we, when we worship and serve idols, it's the epitome of foolishness because we're, we're literally giving our glory away to an image when God already made an image, and that's us. Mm. And so it's such a it's the ridiculousness of worshiping idols. That's a whole other podcast. So yeah. what we see is here we have humanity made to reflect the goodness and wonder and beauty of Yahweh in the world. And it's not just the king, it's male and female, every single one of us. And if we think about what the account is doing in seven days, God takes this darkness, this, you know, this uh, chaos, this waste and uninhabitable place called Genesis one, two, and God begins to bring order. And then he dwells in that thing he's created. And that's what we talk about in God coming to rest on the seventh day. And then he invites humanity to take what he's brought this initial order to and bring that out to the rest of the world. So here he's made a garden, he's placed people in it, and he essentially says, go out from here and bring the same kind of beauty, this same kind of order to the rest of the world. Not just the spiritual world, but the material world, the the plants and the animals, we're to have, we're to cultivate and keep this the goodness and beauty and wonder of God in the world. That's our function. That's our role. And when I just reflect on that, and then I think about what does that mean for humans when it comes to the environment, for humans when it comes to animals, for humans when it comes to each other, we are stewards of God's goodness and grace meant to bring that goodness and grace to bear in this world with everything that we do in our creativity, in the way that we treat uh, things that are in this world. It's, it's a really high calling that we have. That's that's really compelling. I think to think in terms of um, really the the stewardship and responsibility given to humanity uh, to care for what God has entrusted to us is a pretty uh, pretty pretty beautiful calling. And it's also a little bit of a flip because I, I often hear um, almost the idea that the earth was all created for me. Right. Um, that that like almost like God wanted to create mankind, so He needed to create a good home for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you read the story that way, it, it's not quite as self-serving of humanity mm-hmm. as that mm-hmm. as that reading might present. Right, God, we have a unique calling, and this world functions beautifully when we when we live out that calling. Now, the problem is that doesn't last very many chapters in no. this Bible story or in the story of humanity. And one of the interesting notes in the fall account is. The very thing that humanity was tasked to do, was given this job, this vocation to do, is now going to be filled with toil. That's mm. the key word in Genesis 3 is toil. Uh, relationships now experience toil. Uh, producing and raising children produces toil. And then it says in chapter 3 that even the ground mm. will, produ- will be, it'll be toilsome. It'll have thorns and thistles. And so this this high calling that we were invited into now because of humans taking 
what God has made and instead saying, no, we can define right and wrong on our own. Mm -hmm. We can be our own master. We don't need to submit to the Lord. We can actually take wisdom on our own. Because of that, now there's a fracturing in what we were invited to do in the beginning. And what we're going to see in the story is humans now become, instead of having this, this bringing God's goodness to bear in the world, now we become exploitive of the world. We bring destruction and pain and there's toil on almost every turn that we take. But the story's not over there because when God calls out a people, the nation of Israel, to represent him, to recreate what has gone wrong, he then, every time he does this, he gives them the same original mandate, be fruitful and multiply. And what I find really fascinating is when God gives them the land, even in the nation of Israel, he gives them the land, he gives them certain responsibilities to that land, including he, he limits their ability to be exploitive with that land. And so it's a theme that God is bringing. Humans were given this vocation. Humans have rebelled against it. And now I'm bringing something new through this nation of Israel to reverse this destruction and toil, except Israel will fail just as badly as Adam and Eve did. And interestingly, when God speaks to Israel, I mean, he will talk about the land almost like it's a character. Yeah. I mean, he'll talk about how they have not respected the land mm -hmm. as part of their judgment, mm -hmm. um, including, yes, idolatry, of course, including their mistreatment of other humans. Um, but the treatment of the land is actually something they're held accountable for. Right. What, what to, to, to comp that, maybe to put a bow on all of this, uh, go, go with me to Romans, Romans chapter eight. I, I think this is a part in Romans that we often overlook. A little bit, and if you look at if you if we take Romans as the magnum opus of Paul's reflection on the story of God's faithfulness and the gospel throughout all the ages, this is Paul reflecting on the wonder of the gospel. He he pins this beautiful letter, this book that we call Romans, and the culminating idea, one of the culminating chapters in all of the Bible, and every Bible scholar would say Romans eight is one of the most crucial chapters in all of the Bible. And there's this strange little note in there that takes up several verses, and I just want us to see it. If you wouldn't mind, read for us uh, Romans 8, verse 18 through 25. Romans 8, 18 to 25 from the NIV. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So think about the think of the story arc. I just think this is so compelling. Humans are given an amazing calling, and we blew it. And because of that, now there's toil, and the creation mm -hmm. itself is experiencing that toil. Instead of us bringing God's good order to bear in the world, we bring destruction and we exploit the earth. But 
As Paul reflects on all of this, he gives us his picture of the cosmos even experiencing the glory of this new creation, and he ties it directly to the resurrection of Jesus and the new creation that Jesus is bringing through his people, which are embodied in the church. So what's been reversed is this power of darkness that humans bring is now being reversed in Jesus. And what I find most fascinating of all is the story of the end of our Bible is not God taking humans away from the earth Mm -hmm. to get them off the earth into some heavenly space where we float around on clouds. That's not how the Bible ends. The Bible ends with this new creation that's inaugurated in Jesus's resurrection, that new creation being finally set free to be all that God had created it to be with humans doing the very vocation we were given in the beginning, except now we have been liberated from our bondage to the power of sin as well. And it's as if the whole cosmos is waiting for that moment, this breakthrough that takes place in Jesus's resurrection, the creation is saying, let's keep going, let's keep going. And the cool thing is in the meantime, as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility and a role in that vocation to reflect the image of God everywhere we go, including in the environment and in the world that we see around us. So that's the story arc of the Bible and how it's portraying us and our relationship to what God has made, this world, this thing we call the earth. So, I mean, that that's a, a beautiful, helpful picture of big of where we fit in the story right. and where our responsibility for the earth, for the earth um, comes from. Right. So now, given contemporary questions of should we go green what kind of car should we drive? What kind of policy should we advocate for? Any guidance for, for Christians who are trying to think through these issues in light of that question? Yeah, and, and neither one of us are politicians or we're not, uh, we're not like earth scientists or nope. biologists, things like that. But just something I've helped maybe when I've engaged people with this conversation, whether you're right or left, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, whatever, whatever policy you might have, I think that hopefully we can all agree that we would like to have a a better earth, a clean earth. We would hope that we could leave the earth better than it was when we got here. Yep. And so at a minimum, whether probably we could say whether even in Christ or not, that's right. a hope that we have. And so at, at minimum, let's find points of agreement where we can say, why would we be flippant about this when we could be intentional? And at least say, we want to have a better earth in 10 years than we have now. I don't yep. know why anybody would want a filthier, dirtier earth than we have now. As believers, as Christians, we have a responsibility to, to image the Lord in everything that we do, and we probably need to take that into account in this particular question as well. Very cool. Well, that is, I think, clarifying, and, uh, and hopefully it, it brought some biblical clarity to a modern question. Thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. For further study, we recommend looking in Scripture at Genesis 1 and 2 and Romans 8, 18 to 27. We also recommend the book The Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Walton. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.